long before Nadal and Federer and Djokovic and Serena and Venus ruled the nets, the greatest tennis player in the world was named Pete Sampras. Though Sampras was the greatest champion and won more majors, though, in his era of tennis, the face of tennis was a bad boy named Andre Agassi. It's, okay, I knew. I knew there would be like one 90s lady that's like, woo, yeah. Right? I knew there'd be one, or maybe, maybe a couple. Agassi was the icon of the tennis world. And man, I remember we grew up in upstate South Carolina and we had a family friend who worked in the pro shop at the Greenville Country Club. And we were not country club members, but I always felt a little bougie when I got to go visit her at the Greenville Country Club. And so one time my mama took me to visit her. We went to see her in Greenville and they had for sale the black acid wash denim tennis shorts with hot pink lycra bike shorts underneath <laughs> the Agassiz shorts and I begged my mama to buy them and I, I was thinking about this last night because I, like, I was going over my message and I was thinking about I think those things were like $55 back then but I talked her into buying them and man I had I had the, a t-shirt with hot pink and black, the Nike t-shirt to go with it. And listen, to the kids in the room, I just want you to know, I had some drip before you knew what drippy was, okay? <laughs> I mean, I'm just telling you, I'd put those things on and I'd go play a little tennis at our little community tennis court and I thought I was, I thought I was something. Agassi was just a whole vibe. He's just a whole vibe. His first three years as a top five tennis player, he refused to play in Wimbledon. Not for some political reason, because at Wimbledon they required you to wear all white. And he was known for his hot pink and his neon green. He was a rebel, a renegade in every sense of the word. In fact, one of his main uh, sponsors was the Canon Rebel Camera. And they had a commercial that just encapsulated his whole vibe. And in the commercial, if you're old enough, you remember these commercials, he would say this iconic line. Image is everything. Eos Rebel. Image is everything. But an image can be miserable to, to have to maintain. At 19, Agassi had a shot, his first chance to win a major championship. Uh, the French Open, 19 years old. He was going against a 30-year-old named Andres Gomez, who was at the tail end of his career, who was just about washed up, who had never won a major championship in his whole life. But Agassi lost to Gomez. And after the match, he said that he worried that the headlines would read, image is everything, but Agassi is nothing. Years later, this is unbelievable, if you don't know this story. Years later, Agassi would admit that he was distracted the entire final. 
Because the night before the final, in the shower, his hairpiece began to disintegrate. And his brother took 20 bobby pins to attach his hairpiece to his receding hairline. Because here's what nobody in the world knew. Andre Agassi, the person, was going bald. But Andre Agassi, the rock star tennis star, the long-haired rebel, had an image to uphold. And the entire match against a player that he was frankly better than, he babied the hairpiece and worried with every volley that it was going to fall off on national TV. And his image cost him a championship. Is your image costing you something? Hey, my name's Carter McKenna, some lead pastor here at Mountaintop. Really honored that you're here today to be a part of part three of this series called Lidentity, which we're looking at some of the identities of the world that sometimes lie to us, sometimes don't tell us the truth about who we really are. And if you're joining us online, thanks for welcoming us into your homes or your back porches or wherever uh, you're watching. So by the time we're done today, what I hope that I'll be able to to share with you is how centering our image uh, and our identity on, on an image that the world hands us is a losing game. And it's a lie anyway because you already have an image that is more beautiful than anything the world could offer. So let's start off just by asking some, some questions. What shapes your image? Maybe you're well, let's say you're probably not a long-haired rock star tennis player, <clears throat> but is there something else shaping who you are, how you see yourself? I mean, advertisers almost know where we're most vulnerable here, don't they? They're constantly telling us about our beauty and our bodies and the idea of what the ideal woman should look like, what the ideal man should look like. Sometimes it's linked to our career, to be the top salesperson, to be the top executive. And our title and our public image comes with our identity. Sometimes it's about performance, about outperforming everyone at the office, about outperforming everyone at the school, about our school's test scores being better than that school's test scores. For students, it's about making the grades or making the team or being a starter on the team or earning a scholarship or being first seat in the orchestra or in the performance band. We come to believe that I am what I achieve. I am what I do. I am what I achieve. It can be societal. It can be family pressure. It can be uh, to be the breadwinner at home, to be the perfect spouse, to, have the, to be the family that looks like I have it all together, to take over the family business. Sometimes it's what my parents think I ought to be, what my friends say I've got to be. It can be linked to our body, to our fashion, to how straight our teeth are, that I am how I look. There's all these identities. Image is powerful. And the internet, it's only made this worse, right? Because now we have images all over the place. 
we go on Instagram and we see somebody else's workout video and they're a little more in shape than we are. And we go to TikTok and we see somebody else's dance and they got a little more rhythm than we do. And we go to Facebook and we see someone's family picture and their family's a little more together than ours is. A wise man named Ben Cathy, our executive pastor. I've known Ben for 20 years. I'll never forget this quote. I remember where we were sitting in a McDonald's and he looked at me and we were talking about this and he said, don't ever forget that social media is a billboard, not a diary. We look at other people's billboards, their best advertisements of their best workout, their family picture that took them 17 tries to get, and we look at it through the lens of our diary with our junk and how messed up we are and how broken that we are. The social connections, I mean, they're wonderful. They've given us so many opportunities to connect with people but they can also remind us of the deficiencies of our own image. They've projected even more pressure than we already had. We already had advertisers. We already had Hollywood. We already had the, our families telling us what we should be or what success looks like. And now we've got friends from all over the world and people we don't even know in our pockets. And here's the lie of image, that our outward image verifies inward value that's the lie my outward image verifies how much I am worth on the inside my inward value that my value becomes rooted in did I get the job my value becomes rooted in did I lose the weight did I live up to mom and dad's expectations did I earn the scholarship did I take the perfect photo and all of the things that have, did I lose the weight? Did I make the sale? How many followers did I get? How many likes did we get? How many shares did we get? And I just want to tell you, I don't think this is helping our mental health crisis. I don't think it's helping. Many times, we are mentally unhealthy because our value is rooted in how we measure up to an image that has been handed to us by society, by family, by the media, by everything exterior. And when we inevitably don't measure up, all of a sudden we decide that our inward value is less than. Because outwardly, I'm less than. Because here's the problem. Real life isn't airbrushed. Right? This is all just airbrushed. It's just picture perfect. And when we begin to believe that's what we're supposed to be, that's what we have to be, then all of a sudden, when we don't measure up, we've got this outward image that's, a little broken, a little messed up, and it, it verifies in us that I must, be, I must be a mess. And I'm all about counselors. I'm all about medical professionals, but I can't help but believe that as part of our mental health crisis that we are going through as a country, as a world, is linked to this idea that I've got an image that I'm trying to live up to that I invariably just can't do it. Our obsession 
with the image of what we're supposed to be is hurting who we were created to be. And the Apostle Paul says as much. We're going to read a passage today in which he says that this problem of the images of the world and the, the way we wrap up our identity in it, the trick is, is our mind. The trick is changing the way we think about it. And he points to a path of peace and beauty that we all have in the face of an image-obsessed culture. Now, <clears throat> the letter that we are going to read is from the book of Romans, this little passage from the book of Romans. So if you got your Bibles or you got your app open at home or wherever that you are, if you want to just turn to Romans, we're going to be in Romans chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible and you're in the room, we want to give you one. There's some bookshelves where you leave if you want to grab one. Now, Rome it was an interesting city, and it was one of the most intriguing churches. This letter is one of the most important Christian documents ever written. It is theologically rich. You can read through Romans and then go back and read through it again because you miss so much. I miss so much when I read it. In Rome, probably more than any other church in the early churches, there's all these letters to Ephesians and Corinthians and Galatians, and those were just churches in these different communities. Perhaps Rome was more vulnerable to the images of culture than any other church. After all, Rome was the center of culture. Rome was the center of the world. It was a place with heroes and icons. The city was dotted by statues of pagan gods and Roman emperors, Caesars, the ideals of humanity. The Caesars were even called the sons of God. That's why it's kind of a big deal when Jesus shows up in the Roman Empire and says, nah, I'm the son, uh, singular, of God. They had all these ideas and, the Ro ideas of, and ideals of what humans should be. And the Roman church was made up of two groups of people. The first were Jewish Christians, those who had been Jews, and they had found their identity for centuries. Their entire family line, they had found their identity in their blood. Their identity was that they were children of Abraham and that in their DNA, literally running through their veins, in their ethnic heritage was, a, was, a, was an identity that went back thousands of years. It is who they are, who they were. The second group that was in the Roman church was those that had become Christians who were Roman citizens, who were Greek, who had grown up, not Jewish, but had grown up in the Roman world. And their, their identity was rooted in their Roman citizenship. It was a big deal to be a Roman citizen. You got rights, you had processes that you had to go through, you had certain advantages to life. Their whole identity was wrapped up that they were a citizen of the most powerful empire in the world. And Paul was the perfect person to write them a letter because he was a Jew of all Jews, part of the children of Abraham, and very differently than most people in that culture, he was also a citizen of Rome. And in the very first verse of chapter 12, he cuts right through the middle of this ideology that both of them have. So this is what it says in verse one of chapter 12, if you're reading along. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, 
in view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy. In other words, here's what I want you, in view of God's mercy, I don't want you to think about your citizenship in Rome. I don't want you to think about the royal Hebrew blood running through your veins. I want you, the new starting point for your identity is God's mercy, is rooted in the identity that you have in Jesus Christ, in a God who gave his son for you, to die for you, to resurrect so that you have victory over sin and death. You have a new starting point for your identity, and it's not your passport, and it's not your DNA. It's not your nationality, it's not your rights. You have a new starting point, Jesus, God's grace, God's love, God's mercy. In light of what God has done for you, in light of God's mercy, to offer, I urge you, Paul says, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I want you to offer your bodies, Paul says, because of what Jesus has done for you. I want you to lay aside. Now listen, this word for bodies here doesn't just mean like a body. Like it doesn't mean flesh and bone. Sometimes you read the scriptures and you'll see the word flesh. This is a different word. In fact, some translations say your whole selves. This word means your whole being. Paul says this is radical. This is radical. In light of God's mercy for you, in light of God's grace to you in Jesus Christ, I want you to offer up your whole selves. I want you to sacrifice your ethnic heritage. I want you to sacrifice your citizenship in Rome. I want you to sacrifice Abraham's blood running through you. I want you to bring your whole selves on an altar to the Lord. You have a new starting point for your identity. And it's not about being Jew or Gentile, he says. Every religious system, Judaism and all the pagan religions of Rome, found their identity in participating in sacrificial worship. That was how people knew what you belonged to. And Paul says, listen, new rules. I don't want you to sacrifice a goat, a bull, a chicken, a dove. I want you to bring yourself. I want you to bring yourself all of you, this is what it means to worship the God who created you. And I just wonder, I just wonder what it would look like if we decided to bring our whole selves as a living sacrifice to God. You're like, well, what does that look like? What does that mean? Like, I just wonder in the morning if the first thing you did wasn't pick up your phone but the first thing you did was pick up your Bible. I just wonder if the first thing, when your feet hit the floor, when you go in and you look in the mirror and you know we've all aged 24 hours every morning, and you didn't look to here to find the identity, but you looked in here to find your identity. I wonder if we just said, I'm going to give my time. I'm going to bring my whole calendar to God. I'm going to make worship a priority. And I'm going to bring my calendar. I'm going to create, I believe community. I need community to find my identity in Christ, just like Jake talked about. 
We've got small group signups today, and here's what I know. Some of you are thinking, I don't have time for that. Would you bring your whole self? You want to find out who you really are? You're going to have to bring your whole self. You're going to have to bring your whole calendar to God. I wonder what it would look like. I wonder if we would find ourselves a little bit clearer in the identity of who God had created us to be if we would take our resources, our finances, and say, Lord, I give to you my best. I bring it all to you as a living sacrifice, my whole self. I wonder what it would look like if we would say, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you my time, I'm gonna give you my energy, I'm gonna give you my gifts, and I really just wanna go to church and worship for an hour and go to brunch, but I'm gonna do something crazy, God. I'm gonna worship for an hour and serve an hour. I'm gonna serve kids, and then I'm gonna worship an hour. I'm gonna drive a golf cart, then I'm gonna worship an hour. I'm gonna worship an hour, then I'm gonna serve coffee, because I just wanna give it all to you and see what will happen. And then Paul says this, if you'll offer yourselves, then he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't don't do it. Don't buy into the the images that the world is selling. Don't listen to the voices that are saying, you have to do this, you have to look like this, you have to buy this, you have to, you have to, you have to. Don't do it, don't buy it, don't think it. I was thinking about how subtle this is. There's a new way of this. There's a a new part of this. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, listen, I'm not going to do it just because everybody else is doing it. Your mom and daddy told you that, right? Well, if everybody else jumped off a building, would you? Well, they weren't jumping off a building. They were doing something fun, right? But this is, there's a new way to say this. There's a new way in this in the world. I just thought about this. Click, and then it comes up on your screen. People who bought this also bought... You know what Amazon's telling you? Everybody else is buying it. Everybody else is doing it. You're like, oh, well, I mean, I could use a case for that, and I could use the shoes that match that. I mean, right? I could do what everybody else is doing. It's just the new way to say, like, oh, you may also like, because everybody's doing it. And Paul says, don't buy into the lie. You don't have to do it because everybody else is doing it. Instead, I don't want you to be conformed to the patterns of this world that tell you what you're supposed to look like, be like, do I want you to be transformed. And the word for transformed here is this great Greek word. You could probably figure out what word we get from it, metamorpho. What word do we get from that? Metamorphosis. Paul says, if you will daily offer yourselves to God, if you will bring yourself to God, if you will sacrifice all the identities that you have wrapped up your image in and bring them to God, you're going to go through a metamorphosis. You're literally, I am going to change you from the inside out, God says. And your mind, I love what it says there. I love what it says there. Can we go back one, one verse there? Go back one verse. Your mind will be renewed the way you think. 
will be reset. And then Paul says this in the next verse. He says, then, then, after you offer yourselves to God, after you have gone through this transformation, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You, when somebody says, oh, you've just got to move into that neighborhood. That's where everybody's moving to. Oh, you just got to get one of these cars. Oh, you just got to wear that outfit. Oh, you just got to go to that party, teenagers. Or you just got to do this. Or you just got to get married by this age. Or you just got to have kids by this age. Or you just got to do this. You know what you'll be able to do? Your mind will be reset, renewed, transformed, gone through a metamorphosis, and all of a sudden you'll do this. You'll be able to see the whole world clearly. You'll go to this. There'll be this beautiful voice from the Holy Spirit in your brain say this. No, you don't. You don't got to move to that neighborhood. You don't got to wear that. You don't got to have that car. You don't got to have that. You don't got to get married by then. No, you don't. Your mind will be renewed. And if you don't put your identity, there's no, if you don't put your identity in Christ, there's no telling what story you'll tell yourself. I find myself struggling with this. Can I just have a moment of confession to you? That sometimes when I get a message from someone that says, hey, can you call me back? Or can I come meet with you? Can I come by the office? I want to tell you something. Confessions of a pastor. I can do a fabulous job weaving together a story in my mind in which I will be berated or betrayed. I begin telling myself how much they must hate me, how, how much I failed in leadership, how, how something, I didn't see something that I should have had, how I dropped the ball, or how they're probably out to get me, and I can very quickly, do you do this to yourself? I can very quickly start playing the failure card and the victim card very quickly because the old patterns start creeping up in my mind but praise the Lord I've got this little bitty part that I think has been renewed and I'll have to just stop everything in its track and this is the question I ask myself I go wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute is this just a story I'm telling myself boy when you start doing some stinking thinking about your image about what you're supposed to be, about what you're supposed to look like, about what you think others think about you, about how you think others see you, about how much you feel like a failure and you're not measuring up. If you could just stop right there in your tracks and ask this question, wait a minute, is this just a story I'm telling myself? Is this what a renewed, renewed mind would think? Do I have a reason to believe that this person has out, is out to get me? Do I, should I believe this person is out to sabotage my ministry because two or three out of thousands of wonderful church members have done that in my life? Are they like the thousands? Are they like the two or three? I want to tell you what, almost all the time, it's like, hey, I was just calling you because I need you to pray for my family. Or, hey, I just needed to meet because I just wanted to ask you your help with something. And you know what, often I hang up the phone or they leave my office and this is what I say to the Lord, Lord, I'm still so broken. My identity is still so broken. Would you renew and restore 
my image. Because here's the problem that I have figured out. Here's the problem. It is all about image. My fear is that I haven't lived up to the image of what they think a pastor should be. And if I believe those stories, then I can never believe the story God says about me. See, here's the problem, and I'll bet you've got this problem too because I think we're all a lot alike. Sometimes what I find is I have to decide, am I going to believe my words about me or what the word says about me? Because when I start kind of whining and moaning to God about, well, man, I, they probably don't like me, and they probably, I'm such a failure as a pastor. You know what God says to me? I don't even see you as a pastor, but you are a part of the priesthood of all believers, a holy and royal priesthood. You are, you are dearly and wholly loved, and when I feel like the world is against me, God says, how could the world be against you? God is, I'm for you. Who could be against you? You are a son do you believe are you believing what your words say about you are you trusting what the word says about you don't believe the lies that you tell yourself that others tell you that this is what a mom has got to be like that this is what a dad has got to be like that this is what a student is like a high school student is like or a middle school student is like or you got to wear this or you got to be a certain way the world doesn't know you the world didn't create you the world didn't form your inmost being it you we need to be renewed because we need to be reminded that we already have an image and it is on page one of the Bible. Genesis 1:27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You are made in the image of God. And the only image that matters is the one you already have. The only image that matters is the one you already have. Your intellect, your skills, your talents, your skin tone, your body type, your complexion, your eye color, your hair, your talents, everything you have, you have it to be exactly who you were created to be because I want to tell you something, you look just like your daddy. The fingerprints of the heavenly father are all over you. You already have an image. And it was given to you when you were an idea in the mind of the creator of the universe. And when he began to knit you together in your mama's womb. The only image that matters. The only one that matters is the one that you already have. And you, you have all the image needed to be exactly who God created you to be. The world, they don't know you. Here's the crazy thing. People like to say that religion just wants to control you. That Christianity just wants to put you in a box. That the church is all about rules and it just wants to make you not do this or go here, there, and do this. That's a bunch of hogwash and don't believe a word of it. It's all a lie identity. 
Do you know what the church wants? What Jesus wants? What God wants for your life? Is for you to restore your heart, renew your mind, and rediscover the image of God that is already embedded in your soul. God doesn't want to control you. He wants to release the you that he made you to be. And the images of this world will try to take it away from you and cover it up with a bunch of lies. Don't you believe it for one second. You already look good. <laughs> the only image that matters is the one you already have. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, God, that we don't have to be conformed to the patterns of this world, Lord, and we confess that we often find ourselves falling back into habits, falling back into mindsets. Lord, we would pray that our minds would be renewed, our hearts would be restored, and our souls would be reminded that we got a little bit of our Heavenly Father in us when we look back in the mirror. Lord, I pray that we find it in your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we couldn't have a better opportunity today to celebrate.